This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Channel podcast. Sorry that I sound a bit echoey, but our studio is still full on construction site. Today, we're going somewhere where echo also plays a very important role, which is underwater. Flo, I swear, English is not your mother tongue, but you're a magician with these segues sometimes. Yes. Today, we are talking about submarines. Now, admittedly, this is not really my thing. I have a bit of a, not that comfortable in water and the blacker it is, like Canadian lakes, the less I like it. But um, submarine warfare, extremely important, obviously, in the First World War, kind of one of the unique new things that the war brought to history in a way or on, on that scale. So yeah, we had uh, Matthew as our guest. And he knows his stuff. Yeah, it's, I think, one of the longest interviews we've done so far. I think you will all enjoy it. We, you all had plenty of, like the Patreons had sent in a lot of questions and we answered, I think, all of them. If you have any more questions to Matthew, you can actually find him on our Patreon Discord. Um, everyone who joins our Patreon and supports the channel gets invited to our discord server discord is a chat ser a chat service basically and we have a chat room there where other great war enthusiasts uh, and also jesse tony and me um, are usually available to chat if you have any questions and talk a lot about um, a variety of topic topics that, um, and when Matthew is there and not talking about submarines, he is, for example, very keen on talking about cavalry in the First World War II. So definitely give it a go. Thanks for your support. And now, without further ado, let's dive deep, pun, submarines in the First World War. So I'm very pleased today to welcome our next guest to the Great War Podcast. His name is Matthew Novosad, and he's a master's student at the University of Connecticut in the US, and he specializes in maritime and early submarine history. So that's going to be our topic for today. So thanks a lot, Matthew, for joining us. We're very glad to have you on the show. So before we get into the nitty gritty of uh, subs and how they're supposed to be used and torpedoes and all the rest of that uh, good and cold and wet stuff, um, why don't you tell us a bit about how you ended up in the MA program specializing in that area? What drew you to subs and submarine history and in particular maybe allied submarines because they don't get as much sort of you know high profile press as the German ones do. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I grew up in a Navy family. My dad was actually a submariner during the late Cold War. So I grew up surrounded by you know submarines everywhere, being near a submarine base here in Connecticut. Uh, and so when I was in college, 
I majored in maritime studies, which for me was kind of a big leap, never having been a huge naval person. You know, I kind of grew up in that environment. And one day I was reading a book. It was called uh, The Great War Illustrated 1915, and it's really a collection of images. And in their section on the Battle of Gallipoli, they actually had some pictures of British submarines there. And I was like, wait, hold on. British submarines of Gallipoli, what, what's the story behind this? And so from there, I just found this huge rabbit hole of the Allied submarines as a whole and the way they factored into the greater naval strategies. Okay, that sounds good. And that actually leads me into uh, my next question, question, which is a sort of general one. I think that maybe quite a few of our viewers who, uh, even if they have a passing interest in the Great War, they'll kind of know German submarines trying to sink ships bringing food to Britain, more or less, right? But what is the situation with the Allied submarine fleets? Who has them? And what is their intended role in a, in a conflict? Uh, so I guess I'll return to the North Sea. So uh, in 1914, again, they started off in, these, in this reconnaissance role. And so for most of the war, the British submarines were on reconnaissance patrols. They'd be posted on what's called a billet just essentially a line in the water that they'd be assigned to go sail on. And this was very tiring and most of the time uneventful work. It was because the German surface fleet wasn't really around all that much since there was the balance of power with the Royal Navy having the uh, Grand Fleet being so large. Uh, so they didn't always find what they were looking for, but they were there to watch and to hopefully prevent some vessels from making their way out uh, to attack the British. Uh, and the uh, British submarines would spend, like I said, most of their time underwater on these billets. So they would start on like a one end, they'd submerge for most of the day, and they'd go from fairly slowly at running on their batteries, uh, what's called a periscope watch, so they'd be looking through a periscope most of the time. And they'd come up at night to recharge the batteries, usually for just a couple of hours, they'd submerge again. So this is, again, very tedious, tiring work day after day until the patrol period ended and they were supposed to return home. Uh, now, some submariners did not like this kind of duty. They thought it was just kind of antithetical to the service. So, for example, on August 14th, or not August, I'm sorry, July 14th, 1916, the day that the Battle of Basington Ridge started as part of the Somme campaign, interestingly enough, uh, HMS H5 left its patrol billet and went to the Jade River and sank U-51. And uh, the captain of the boat, which was uh, Lieutenant Varley, uh, the Admiralty wasn't happy with him because he had abandoned his post, essentially. And he said it was because he was bored and wanted to sink a submarine. So there was this also this kind of almost, uh, I'm not going to say piratical, but very much a very almost more free-spirited nature within the submarine service at this time in the Royal Navy. Uh, it's been argued that they were very, it was a fairly insular service so that during, uh, between its founding in the very early 1900s for the First World War, you had a very small core group of submariners that made up this whole thing and they were more or less separate from the greater Royal Navy. So they kind of imbued this almost adventurous spirit within themselves and within the service. So they were a little more willing to break the rules occasionally uh, but again, it was very boring service for the most part, and as Lieutenant Barley kind of demonstrated. And I guess if you if you if you don't have a first person shooter to keep you occupied uh, when you're bored, then I guess you make your own. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so another example of these of reconnaissance patrols actually 
doing what they were supposed to was in uh, late 1916 in November, uh, the Germans had sent surface forces to go retrieve a couple of U-boats that had actually run aground. And HMS J-1 was on its station when it uh, was able to torpedo the uh, SMS Grosser Kurfürst and the SMS Kronprinz, which were two very new dreadnoughts. Uh, and this actually made like headlines around the world. For example, in the New London Day in November 1916, the first article, they were mistaken and they thought they, they had only reported that the J-1 had uh, torpedoed one armored German vessel. But the next day, it was, it was a front page story was a British submarine torpedoes two German, uh, German armored vessels right alongside articles about U-boats sinking ships and all this other kind of stuff going on in the world. So this wasn't necessarily also a secret that the British were using their submarines this way, which might seem antithetical to the whole submarines being under the water and not being seen and no one's really supposed to know about it, but people did. Uh, and kind of going from there as well, in addition to the these patrols being very long and tedious, the submarines themselves were not the most reliable pieces of equipment. Uh, for example, the diesel engines would often break down, sometimes to the point where they needed major, major refits in port. So for example, S1 under Lieutenant Commander Kellett, uh, they had a major, I think it was the ball, major bearing blew in their uh, diesel engine. They only had their batteries and they couldn't make it all the way back from Horns Reef to the UK. Their batteries would just run out of energy and they couldn't recharge them up their diesel engines. So uh, Lieutenant Commander Kellett had a brilliant idea, which was they waited on the bottom of the North Sea for pretty much the rest of the night. And then near daybreak, they ended up going up to periscope depth and they noticed there was a German trawler. So they actually captured this German trawler. So they boarded it and they used this trawler to tow their submarine back to the UK. There was some ingenuity in the face of a very major mechanical issue that otherwise would have had left them stranded in the North Sea. There were other instances, such as the French Archimede, which was a steam-powered submarine that the French were operating in 1915 in the North Sea. Uh, it was damaged in a storm, so they couldn't detract, retract the funnels that would let the, you know, the, all the smoke and stuff usually out of the submarine, and it was letting a lot of water in. And that's not good, because the batteries start to get... The batteries on a submarine would start to... Uh, they have chlorine in them, and so when they start to interact with seawater, it creates chlorine gas. And so they're trying to prevent all this water from hitting the batteries. They're trying to make it, and they're trying not to ruin more of the submarine so they can actually make it back to port. And they were left with a few options, one of which was running to the Netherlands because it was close and they'd be interred, but they'd be alive and well. They made the decision to actually go back to the UK and they managed to went back to port miraculously. Uh, <clears throat> and again, so this is kind of illustrating the point. These were not reliable machines by any stretch of the means. Uh, but, it makes, say, but it makes for some awesome stories though. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, like I said, these were very much adventurers in many aspects, in many aspects of that word. They were willing to do kind of crazy things. And I guess you do have to be a certain, and I do have to say, you probably do have to be a certain sort of crazy to, you'd be, you know what, I'm going to go in this steel tube that goes under the water. And that's kind of that. <clears throat> so uh, I guess I'll fast forward to 1917. So in 1917, the Royal Navy is being kind of stretched thin. It's stretched all across the world. And the U-boats, uh, there's more of them by this point. And the unrestricted submarine campaign was restarted in February of that year. 
and the Royal Navy just does not have enough destroyers to perform all its duties everywhere. So when the U.S. enters the war, one of the first things they ask is, can you send us destroyers? So the U.S. sends some destroyers uh, in mid-1917. But something that had been brewing uh, within the U.S.'s submarine services, like, we have a feeling that they're going to ask for submarines to work on anti-submarine duties. And <clears throat> uh, early in that year, there was this memorandum written, it was in late April, where it's essentially a shopping list of we need to make these improvements to our submarines so they will actually be able to go provide the service that the British are probably going to ask us to do. Safe to say most of these did not happen. For example, a lot of the periscopes weren't uh, refit. Uh, American periscopes were fairly low quality, didn't zoom far enough, and their housings would leak and they would get all foggy, and that doesn't help anyone. But uh, after some changes, they did send the U.S. submarines to first, uh, was called Division 4, to the Azor Islands, where there were four K-class submarines, and in December of that year, one E-class submarine. And then in December, uh, Division 5, as it was called, which was, if I remember correctly, it was seven L-class submarines made their way from New London, Connecticut, to Newport, and then to Ireland. Their initial destination was going to be Queenstown, but it was too filled up with destroyers and whatnot, so they ended up moving the division to Bantry Bay. So starting in uh, February of that year, they started receiving training from the Royal Navy on how to attack U-boats because Americans had absolutely no practical experience with this. And they worked closely alongside some famous British submariners of the era, principally Martin Nasmith, who I'll talk about later in some of his other roles. But at this point, he was assigned to training Americans. And... Um, for example, in the war diary of the USS L-10, the skipper uh, J.C. Vandekar, he waxed very poetic about uh, this training for Martin Asmuth. He calls him the you know, like greatest Samariner to ever live. Uh, it was kind of odd for what's supposed to be an official, like, this is what our submarine did today, kind of log. Um, J.C. Vandekar was a little more, I think, free-spirited in his writing. But... So that's the kind of training they were receiving. And so it would be often um, the British would have some submarines and then they would line up an attack, be like, okay, so this is how we're going to line up. This is how you line up an attack and the submarine that's on the surface. And they kind of go through the whole steps, including you know, how to submerge, what angles you should try to approach the submarine from, what the approximate distance you should be firing your torpedoes from, all that kind of stuff, and training the crews and diving quickly and maneuvering and all these other critical skills that they would need in order to successfully fight the U-boats. Now, <clears throat> the thing is, with all this great training, the Americans sunk absolutely zero U-boats between March 1918 when they started their patrols and November 1918 when the armistice came. Uh, <clears throat> part of this is down to the technological differences with American submarines. They were fairly low speed, as I had kind of alluded to earlier. They had issues with their periscopes and just were overall not fit for the duty they were set to. They did encounter U-boats approximately 20 times. Uh, some of these were very close run affairs. For example, the AL-2 had an incident where they were actually spotted by a U-boat and they had, the U-boat had fired a torpedo at them and they had spotted it just in time and it just went over the deck as they were submerging. So again, very close run affairs, but it did not result in any victories for the U.S., which is kind of, um, they say their, uh, their operational doctrine, which was officially released, which they you know, internally released, not officially, I should say, which was internally released 
uh, to various parts of the Navy was titled, Our Principal Objective is Total Annihilation of the Enemy. So by that metric, they completely failed. But, <clears throat> but there's kind of a caveat to this, is that while they didn't sink anything, they did affect a, they did have deterrence. They worked as a deterrent against U-boats. Uh, <clears throat> this is true no matter where Allied submarines were, not just against U-boats, but also against surface vessels. Uh, there are multiple accounts of Brit or German submarine crews being interviewed after their submarine was sunk or after the war of, yeah, we were afraid of those Allied submarines that were potentially patrolling that area because we could get sunk at any time. We just didn't know. They had that very same fear that merchant ships had of the U-boats. But of course, instead of the, the U-boats were afraid of Allied submarines instead. Uh, even German admirals apparently had the same sort of fear about, you know, it's very easy for us to lose our vessels, both surface and submerged, to submarines. And so something that uh, is noted in the uh, Division 5's official war history and some other documents is that is the deterrent effect. And specifically um, that they would intercept radio uh, transmissions from the German U-boats. And then they would set a patrol kind of in that region. And... Uh, as a patrol, and then the patrol would happen, and all of a sudden the U-boat had disappeared from that region. They had kind of they had noticed that oh, there actually might be a presence now of these Allied submarines, and so they really did have an effect, although not necessarily I think the way the effect that the Navy initially wanted them to have. All right. Um, well, that was quite the answer to the first question for today. We've gone all over uh, a lot of important aspects of it with the strategy of it, the resources applied, uh, some of the star figures of the submarine war, some of the tactics. Um, so we're off, to, we're off to quite a comprehensive start. So our next question is a bit of a, a comparison question between World War I and World War II. I think it's fair to say probably that most people who are casually interested in history Probably when they think of submarine warfare in history, they are more likely to think of World War II, maybe wolf packs, stuff like that. What are the big differences between submarine warfare in World War I and World War II? Or what are the sort of two or three most important ones? Oh, definitely the biggest difference is that the Allies embraced unrestricted campaigns in the Second World War. In the First World War, they, while they did have campaigns against merchant shipping, they did try to stick to the prize rules, though there were sometimes individuals who violated international law. But for the most part, they were trying very hard to stick to that. So in the Second World War, you see the Allies and their, uh, the Americans in particular in the Pacific Ocean, they conducted an unrestricted campaign against the Japanese. Uh, the British as well conducted unrestricted um, campaigns against the Italians and the Germans, the Atlantic, in the North Sea, really, and in the Mediterranean. <clears throat> so that's really, I would say, what is the biggest difference. Because mechanically speaking, the submarines were very similar to those in the First World War. So the way they operated wasn't all radically different. It was really the big difference really was the strategy involved. Okay. Um now, in terms of one of the objectives of that strategy in the First World War, for the Germans anyway, was to starve Britain. And I've read in the past, in a couple of different uh, 
general histories of the war, that there's these estimates, you know, six weeks of grain reserves were left in Britain in 1917, et cetera, et cetera. What is the big limitation with that strategy of trying to starve Britain? Admiral Holzendorf, who was uh, wrote a 200-page memoranda in December 1916 uh, to try to convince the German government to again take up the mantle of unrestricted submarine warfare after they had canceled their earlier campaign, uh, was wishful thinking. The numbers were predicated essentially on the idea that the British and the Allies do absolutely nothing, that they don't respond to the campaign, that they just accept these losses as they come and don't really replace anything, they don't try any countermeasures. Um, and so I'd say that's one of the bigger limitations of it, that just the numbers were very, very optimistic. The second is that while Germany at this point did have one of the larger submarine fleets in the world, there still weren't enough U-boats to affect those numbers. Uh, and at any one time, you might only have a dozen, two dozen submarines out at most, because the rest would be, you know, transiting somewhere or in port under repairs, troops are being trained, that, trained, that sort of thing. Uh, and as I kind of alluded to as well, effective Allied countermeasures, principally the convoy. Uh, convoying was extremely important for the Allies in reducing the threat of submarines by condensing the amount of ships that were out there and protecting them with escorts. And so that's kind of, those are kind of, I'd say, the big limitations. And to be fair to Holzendorf, had the, um, I'd also say, uh, had, you know, the British not responded and the numbers had stayed at the levels they were in April 1917, which was the high point of the unrestricted campaign, they could have been possible. But again, that possibility is predicated entirely on the Allies just doing absolutely nothing. And to coalition warfare, uh, just as kind of a side point, the, uh, like as, as like the Americans sent destroyers, the Italians, the French, everyone was working together to counter this threat. It wasn't just the UK. So, yeah, it was a multitude of factors, but definitely very wishful thinking. All right. Yeah, yes. Coalition warfare. So hard, but so good when it's done right. Um, and on that topic, actually, the next couple of viewer questions are about, uh, let's say, I don't want to say peripheral. I want to be fair here, but not the British in the North Atlantic. Um, one of our viewers asks about the contribution of Italian submarines. One of them asks about submarine activity in the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea. Well, and then there's Asia, but maybe we'll, we'll get to that afterwards. Maybe we'll... So what's up with the Italians and what's up with the Mediterranean and the Black Sea? Yeah, so in the Mediterranean, uh, the big uh, U-boat threat was essentially a threat even after convoying had been uh, started due to the fact that unlike the North Sea, the entire Mediterranean was uh, a war zone. Everything was super close to each other. In the North Sea, you had more space. For areas where you didn't necessarily have to convoy troops and ships, while in the Mediterranean, you could. So there was always this lingering threat of submarines no matter where you were in the Mediterranean. So one of the ways that uh, the Allied powers were thinking there was, okay, let's use submarines in conjunction with our other strategies, try to help bottle up U-boats and the Austro-Hungarian surface fleet inside the Adriatic Sea. So uh, the Italian submarines in particular, alongside the French, uh, they would go into the Adriatic Sea, they would scout around, try to look for where the uh, Austro-Hungarians might have their bases, they might be have special resupply points for submarines. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, would also 
on occasion attack Austro-Hungarian vessels. For example, they might go into the, the uh, into Cattaro and try to torpedo a couple surface vessels, which happened on occasion. Uh, and so this was part of a larger strategy again of keeping the Austro-Hungarians pulled up in the Adriatic. Uh, they had what was called the um, uh, along the Otranto Straits. They had a huge um, they had mines and nets and these other things to try to prevent U-boats from leaving, as well as surface patrols. So again, it was part of a much larger strategy. And of course, sometimes strategy did strike. Uh, for example, the Italian H-5 was sunk in a friendly friend, friendly fire incident from a British submarine, the HV-1. Uh, so it wasn't completely safe for Allied submarines either, again, because they are going into ports. They are they can be seen from the air, <clears throat> and they are essentially in the enemy's territory. Uh, an example of this was actually the the French Neride, which was sunk by the Austro-Hungarian U-boat U-5 at the time commanded by George von Trapp. Uh, and actually, I'm, I'm sorry, it was the Italian Neride, which was sunk by U-5, uh, which was one of the six Italian submarines to be sunk during the war. And uh, so again, George, uh, George von Trapp was kind of emblematic of the Austro-Hungarian U-boat offensive. Um, and so... Like I said, throughout the entire war, convoying was effective in the Mediterranean, but it wasn't entirely effective because, as I said, you had to convoy literally everywhere. Submarines were pretty much everywhere. And, yeah, so submarines were just one part of a much larger strategy. So I'm not trying to say, like, oh, they are the only part of the strategy or they had the prime eye of all the Allied naval planners, but rather they were part of just this much, much larger thing. Right. Um so as a corollary kind of to that general theater of war, what do we know about any submarine activity in the Black Sea or in the Aegean Sea? I guess the Black Sea is a particular case because it's kind of, I would imagine there you're basically going to have like Russian and Turkish potential for subs, but I don't know very much about the submarine fleets or whether they even had any there. So with the Black Sea, there was a little bit of submarine activity, not as much as you see as like in the North Sea or in the Mediterranean. Uh, as you say, the Russians did have submarines posted there. Uh, the Germans actually ended up shipping overland submarines to the Black Sea. They ended up losing four U-boats in the Black Sea. Two of them were definitively lost to mines. One was potentially lost to a mine. There's also potential that it was bombed by a Russian airplane. And the other ran aground. <clears throat> um, but they didn't sink too much, I think. So they weren't. Yeah, they only sunk 10 steamers and four sailing ships between September 1915 and January 1917. So again, it was a very, it was fairly low activity for the Germans there, but they were there. Uh, the Russians were a little bit more active against the Turkish in the Black Sea. Or not, I'm sorry, yeah, the Black Sea. Uh, for example, uh, just one submarine, the Tulin, which is under Senior Lieutenant Mikhail Kits, uh, Kittison, he sank in 1916 21 sailing vessels, six steamships, and three launches belonging to the Turks or the Ottoman Empire, rather. So <clears throat> they were very active in that way. They also uh, assisted some surface vessels in attacking Turkish convoys. And also Russian submarines laid mines. So they helped kind of block up the Bosphorus from any attempts to go through the Sea of Marmara and all kind of all around that way. <clears throat> so they essentially, the Russians essentially had able dominance of the Black Sea as a result of this kind of stuff. Um, well, that's all very interesting. It's definitely not what first comes to mind when one thinks about submarine warfare. I mean, Russian submarine aces of the First World War, 
is probably a niche book waiting to happen unless it has already happened and I just don't know about it, but there's at least in English, there isn't a lot. Um, that can be one of the struggles of researching some of this stuff. And if you don't have foreign language expertise is that most of what writing does usually exists, exists, uh, about the British and the British perspective. For example, there's a book about the British submarines in the Baltic sea and it references the Russians occasionally, but doesn't really talk about them. It, ta- it focuses all on these British who are working alongside the Russians. Yeah. Um, so let's stick with that theme of slightly less well-known Allied uh, submarine activity. And we had a question about the Chinese and Japanese navies, which of course are allied, but not known for their role of any type in submarine warfare. So what, uh, what was their contribution? So the Japanese ended up actually contributing uh, destroyers to the Mediterranean theater. Again, this period of time when the U-boat threat is really ramping up, when unrestricted submarine warfare was uh, reintroduced, the Royal Navy is really starting to feel stretched. So the Japanese uh, sent destroyers in early 1917. They arrived uh, with eight destroyers initially and two cruisers, and this was called the Second Special Squadron. And that was, like I said, they arrived in April and was the height of the U-boat threat. And they, over between when they got there and the end of the war, they performed 348 escort missions. They had escorted 788 ships with over 700,000 troops on board. So they performed this very, very vital uh, role as hopefully a deterrent against any Austro-Hungarian or German U-boats that were in the Mediterranean from attacking them. As, you know, being a surface vessel that has, at this point, uh, depth charges, has the ability to ram U-boats and all those sorts of other anti-submarine tactics. Uh, one of these destroyers was torpedoed by an Austro-Hungarian U-boat, uh, U-27, torpedoed the Sakai. Uh, it actually killed the captain and 64 crew members. Uh, the destroyer did, wasn't sunk. It, it did survive the attack. Um, <clears throat> and some other activities of the Japanese as well. For example, their destroyers helped save people who uh, had been attacked by a U-boat. For example, the SS Transylvania, which was a British transport, had been torpedoed and they saved over 3,000 people. Wow. Austro-Hungarian naval combat against the Japanese in the Mediterranean sounds like one of those, the very end of that Axis and Allies game scenario that should never happen in real life. Um, Yeah. Okay. I mean, I was just going to kind of add to that too, in these uh, kind of almost unreal things. A lot of times too, when the Allies, especially the British would board a you know set of vessel of the central powers they would go on board uh armed with cutlasses right it was very much this weird clash of time periods they have they're armed with cutlasses they're boarding ottoman sailing vessels and it's like it's just such a really odd why interesting cutlasses and not revolvers at least i mean they would have had um you know firearms on them but the cutlass was kind of like a traditional boarding weapon so when they go to board to inspect to make sure the cargo is what they say it is and it's not war material they had cutlasses with them and it's just such this weird thing. And it's one of the reasons why I just find this period of submarine activity so interesting Good and God. so weird and wild. I mean, th- this is one of those things why I, the first world war is by far my favorite in, you know, intellectual terms, uh, conflict because it's so modern and so kind of pre-modern at the same time. And they, they, oh, they end up exactly. clashing in the strangest a, ways. Um, there's a, uh, good image of an American submarine in 1919, just after the war, they're in Baltimore and they're tied up against the, against the dock 
you see some early automobiles and you also see horse and buggies. And it's like, this is it. Yeah. All right. It's like French uh, cavalry with their breastplates on, you know, riding past super modern 75 millimeter artillery and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, let's, for the last couple of questions, let's drill down again uh, to sort of more specifics in a way. And a couple of questions came from our uh, Patreon supporters about torpedoes. What was the sort of effective range of uh, torpedoes in the First World War? And who had the best ones? So uh, the maximum range, which isn't necessarily the most effective range, the maximum range of these torpedoes depended on which nation. Uh, the Germans tended to have ones that could go farther up to like 8,500 meters or so at the lowest speed setting because you can set it between two different speeds and it can serve fuel in the uh, torpedo line just to go farther. Uh, a lot of the allies, they tended to have torpedoes, that would be, the ones that would be fired from submarines tended to be about 2,500 meters as their maximum. Um, now, functionally, it's kind of a different story. You'd be a lot closer because if you fire at a ship that's 2,500 meters away with your torpedo, you're very likely to miss because they're likely to change the course a little bit or what have you. So functionally, you usually see like 500 to 1,000 meters, but also often under 500 meters. Uh, 400 meters is usually also kind of a sweet spot as well of being close enough to where you're not necessarily going to be seen, but you can still fire effectively at your target. And as to who had the best ones, I would definitely say um, that's a little bit debatable, but like I said, the Germans had ones that could go extremely far and they didn't necessarily, and all torpedoes this era had malfunctions. I would say that allied doctrine also held back their usage and accentuated some of those malfunctions. So I would definitely say that the Germans leaned on the side of having the better torpedoes. Uh, just kind of to touch on the doctrine, for example, the Russians would tend to fire their torpedoes from the maximum range. Again, even like I said, it's not the best idea and it's what accounts for a lot of their misses is the fact they were so far away. Uh, the British started the war, their torpedoes had um, the tendency to go under their target because the settings they used during training for the dummy warheads weren't the same settings they used for the much heavier live warhead. Oh, that sounds like so, a, a, a novice mistake. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but ouch. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, just uh, it was definitely the Germans, I would say, lean on the side of having slightly better torpedoes. Okay. And about how long could a, a First World War submarine stay submerged? Uh, the longest you really see is 24 plus hours. They don't tend to go much longer than that because it gets very uncomfortable on board. <clears throat> um, so a lot of there are a lot of instances of both, you know, Allied submarines and German submarines staying under this long. But kind of at the 24 hour point, your oxygen, it's not going to be the highest quality air in the boat. You've got you know, all these different smells and things, you know, from earlier when you're running diesel engines, you're running the service, some of that kind of stays in. You've got the smell of cooking, you've got sweat and all this other kind of nasty smells. Um, and your batteries would start to run low at that point. So you'd have to come up and surface to recharge them using your uh, diesel engines. And uh, so those are probably the two biggest reasons they only stayed down that long was the battery life and the uh, just conditions for the crew was starting to get unbearable. <clears throat> um, 
That said, the Germans tended to stay on the surface a little more when they're transiting around. Because again, they're trying to hunt down ships. So it's easier for them to do that if they're initially on the surface and then submerge at the opportune moment. The allies tended to be on those patrol billets and that's where they would stay submerged for you know however long they could, then come up for a couple hours to briefly recharge the batteries and go back under and for another day, essentially. Okay. Um, now, before we uh, finish up for today, I wanted to just throw uh, throw out the question: If you had like two or three top uh, books that you would recommend for anybody who's interested in the topic, what would those be? Uh, definitely, the first one is "Find and Destroy" by Dwight R. Messimer. It's uh, entirely about anti-submarine efforts in the war. You can't really understand how submarines were used unless you understand how they were being fought. And Dwight Messimer does a really good job of exploring uh, how submarines were used in these various capacities and how they were fought. So it's a very good introductory text for this. It's not too long. He doesn't get too super technical. Uh, and so it's one of my favorites. If you want to know kind of about those adventures of British submarines, it's a little bit older, uh, but it's called, and it's gone by a couple of names. But one of them is uh, British Submarines at War by Edwin Gray. And then uh, <clears throat> for a third book, uh, I kind of alluded to it earlier, again, about the Baltic, was Michael Wilson's Baltic Assignment, uh, British Submariners in Russia, 1914 to 1919. So I lie. We, we have a bonus question here that's come from behind the scenes from Flo. And that is about British naming practices, because they have all these glorious, uh, fancy and mythological names for their surface vessels, but they seem pretty ho-hum and bureaucratic for their submarines with like letter and number designations and stuff like that. Do we know why that is? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so this was kind of a weird period for submarine names because... Uh, the French and the Italians, they, you know, they used very fun, fancy names, you know, naming them after politicians and famous people from their respective nation's history or mythological connotations. Uh, the Americans had for a time used actual names. They named them after things like, it was like the tarantula, for example, that was an early American submarine. Uh, they decided to, the Americans in particular decided to switch to a letter designation and a number designation essentially for kind of like bureaucratic purposes. It was just easier to keep track of. Uh, and I can't say for certain with the Royal Navy, I would suspect there's probably a similar reason. And also with the almost separate identity of the submarine service, it was a way for the Royal Navy as a whole to kind of almost treat it as kind of lesser or more like their um, other smaller surface vessels like torpedo boats and whatnot. Ah, prestige, the enemy of all. Uh, of all cool submarine names, as it turns out. All right. Um, that was it for our this episode of the Great War Podcast. I really want to thank you, Matthew, for having come on and joined us. Uh, I learned a lot about submarine warfare in World War I. It's not something that is really my forte, so to speak, so I really enjoyed it. And I want to let all of our listeners out there know that if you're interested in the topic, you can follow Matthew on Twitter, and we're going to post, Flo will put up a link along with this podcast uh, to Matthew's Twitter profile. So thanks again, Matthew, for coming on. It was uh, I had fun. Of course, as did I. Thank you very much.